So welcome everyone to the fourth in our series of Urban Transport Next Conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know don't know us, we bring together the transport authorities for the largest urban areas in the UK, so Transport for London, Transport for West Midlands, Transport for Greater Manchester, and the authorities serving all the other major metro areas, uh, about 20 million people in total. So as well as being a body that thinks ahead about what next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and we can and we do learn collectively from these events. I'm really pleased that so many people have signed up to take part in this event and delighted that we can offer you such a stellar panel for this conversation on what next for urban transport after the pandemic. And as I say, we couldn't have uh, better speakers on this for you. We have uh, Laura Schoaf, who chairs our network of transport authorities in the UK, as well as being the chief executive of Transport for West Midlands. And we have Mohamed Maganzi, who is the general secretary of the Global Public Transport Network, UITP. UITP represents everyone from operators, organising authorities, the supply industry and everyone in between on public transport right around the planet. And the host for the conversation is Philip Rode, Executive Director of LSE Cities, part of the London School of Economics. LSE Cities is one of the global centres for thinking about the future of cities, including their transport systems and networks. So you can also be part of this conversation by putting questions, keep them short and sharp, please, via Zoom. You can also vote for the questions you most want answered. We'll be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call. And of course, you can also uh, use Twitter with the hashtag UTGNext. So that's hashtag UTGNext. So with that, I will now hand over to our host, Philip. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to now take over as a chair and interviewer uh, as part of this uh, event. A uh, very important focus, obviously, uh, there doesn't, uh, this doesn't require a lot of introduction that we need to think hard and clear about uh, the future of urban transport. And given who is with me on the panel, there will, of course, be a big emphasis on the backbone of urban transport, and that is, of course, public transport. Uh, so let me just introduce the structure, uh, and then we'll have a quick round of uh, sort of individual introductions by our uh, guests. We'll have about uh, 40 minutes for the conversational part uh, and uh, we'll structure that in four rounds um, and then we'll have uh, the 15 minutes uh, Q&A so do make active use as Jonathan suggested of the Q&A option. Uh, we'll start initially with a uh, reflection about the past 12 months, the big disruption through the pandemic but ultimately are then going to focus on uh, three aspects of looking into the near and medium term future. The first is really in relation to what is happening on the ground by the key actors in the urban transport space. The second one is looking at national government and the role of national governments. And then the last one is really understanding how we may have to reframe urban transport uh, in the political debate much more as a public good with all its implications. Uh, but as I said, let's begin now with a very quick 
round of introductions uh, where I'd like to ask Laura and then Mohammed to briefly tell us how they ended up in the transport space so we have a better idea who is speaking to us today. Laura. Thank you, Philip. Um, well, I studied uh, to be a planner. So I have a degree in urban planning from uh, NYU, New York University, which is where I come from. Um, and it is, it's through my interest in planning, which is really about the entirety of, of those spaces and urban spaces in particular and how they work and how they function. Um, and how they move people that I've started to sort of focus in on transport. Um, and that and that still today frames my my passion and my interest in the topic of transport, which is um, transport in and of itself, if it's not well designed and planned, doesn't doesn't do anything for anybody. But when it is well thought through and it thinks about where people need to be, where they want to start and finish their journeys and how important that mobility is to cities and the people that live within them, as well as to other areas, that's the that's where I sort of came interested in transport and where I have that passion for transport. Um, and I particularly am interested and passionate about cities, um, including uh, Birmingham, which is where we now, I now live and work. Thank you very much, uh, Laura and Mohammed. Yes, uh, actually I have always been working in the field of sustainable mobility for more than 30 years now. It started during my industrial engineering studies. Uh, it was in Tunisia. We had a visiting professor who delivered one week course on transportation. And for me, it was a discovery. And uh, I liked very much that course and decided to take a postgraduate program on transport in, uh, in Paris. So I moved to, to France. And then I, after this that, uh, postgraduate program, I started my career in urban mobility, first in a public uh, agency dealing with uh, transport energy efficiency on how to depollute, I would say transport, then as a consultant for technical assistance projects uh, funded by development uh, banks and cooperation agency, mainly in, uh, in developing countries or countries in transition. Uh, and later I joined UITP where I held various uh, positions until I took over the position of Secretary General in 2018. I must say that uh, public transport is not just my professional sector, but and, and like uh, Laura, it's a passion. Uh, I, I believe in the values it carries because they are related to social inclusion, to people's well-being, to, to sharing, and it pursues, for me, it pursues a noble cause. And, and that's why I made the, that choice to serve the, this industry. So I'm very happy and proud actually to work in, in and for public transport. Thank you very much, uh, Mohammed. Now, as I said, we want to really focus with this uh, talk on uh, the future. But uh, I think it's uh, uh, only appropriate given uh, the almost 12 month or in many countries more than 12 month reflection on the pandemic to also briefly remind ourselves how uh, this uh, dynamic of lockdowns of pandemic control uh, played out on the ground in the context of your jobs. What were the priorities? What are the critical moments you remember uh, since uh, in sort of many of the countries you're working in, it is pretty much exactly one year um, since uh, COVID hit us that hard. Um, and how were you able to support uh, your organizations? Um, let's again start with Laura, a bit of a reflection of uh, these uh, very, very difficult uh, months. 
Yeah, we've been doing a lot of reflecting uh, lately, and and it is amazing. Like most things, when you're in the middle of something <clears throat> that is sort of born of a crisis, you get through it, don't you? And it isn't until after you come to some sort of a calmer state that you can then turn back and think, gosh, there was ever such a lot that we did and, and how well we did it. But um, for, for us, at first it was crisis management, you know, just trying to um, make sure as a, as a priority. And I think what, what has driven us all throughout this has been keeping our passengers and, and our employees safe. Um, but, you know, figuring out uh, how to source um, face coverings and uh, and vinyls so that tell people how they can be two meters apart exactly and where to line up and information and make trying to distribute uh, sort of those things on mass scale um, was something we had not done before. Um, but again, we had, we have great networks, both, um, in this country and then around the world through UITP and other partners who, where we could, where we could learn best practice from other places and, and not have to start from scratch, you know, take really good ideas that have happened elsewhere and make them happen as soon as you can. We discovered it's, it's not hard to shut a network down at all, but it's, it's really quite difficult to start one back up again. So the sort of accordion style of, you know, expanding services, reducing services, expanding services, reducing services is really challenging on anything from information, but, but especially what you want is people to be, to be safe and feel and know they are safe. So probably the biggest things that we did, I think, which were on reflection, the most powerful was we took a decision to distribute across all of our networks, free face coverings, um, which which we have not stopped actually, or, and we thought we would, but we haven't, um, because it's uh, it means a lot to passengers to know if somebody else is traveling who doesn't have a face covering that somebody will give them one, um, and also it's been really good for our employees because it's it's a diffusing situation. So so being able to distribute free face coverings as a decision that we made was great. We also repurposed some of our vehicles so that we could give free travel to our um, NHS staff who were moving between rail stations and our key hospitals. Um, and those were in the moment decisions we made just trying to make sure we asked ourselves, are we doing everything we can for our passengers and for our, for, um, and for our employees? And that was the one question that guided us throughout the whole, throughout the whole thing. Thank you very much, uh, Laura, and uh, clearly an experience uh, very, very much on the ground with your city region, really helping. Uh, and, uh, you know, that also, I guess, very much resonates with your earlier explanation around how much, you know, ultimately caring about transport is caring about a city, a place, uh, a region. Uh, Mohammed, your organization is different. Uh, you are uh, sitting in the central command and control uh, tower of UITP overseeing, you know, many, many different organizations such as LORAS, helping them, assisting them. Uh, what did this uh, mean to you? Where did you find uh, the role, how, and then also UITP's role to facilitate uh, the urgent needs your partners on the ground had the best? Yes, indeed, we, uh, we have, I have a different role uh, compared to, to Laura. Laura manages uh, the network of public transport network. We manage a network of networks, I would say. We have 1,800 uh, uh, members in UITP from 100 countries. So with different, uh, different uh, 
preoccupations and different uh, concerns, but uh, this uh, pandemic, uh, when uh, it hit the, the, the world actually, all of them were equal because no one uh, experienced such a, such a, uh, uh, such a pandemic. In Asia, they had the first experience with the, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the early 2000, uh, but with a different scale. And uh, so the, our role was first to, uh, to support our members, to support them, to reassure them that they are not alone in this, uh, in this, uh, with this issue, that the other networks and the other organizations, they are experiencing the same, the same uh, problem. And, but also we learned from those who, uh, where, where the pandemic was, uh, was touched, touched, uh, touched them uh, earlier before the others, so in Asia mainly. So we learned from our members there. And I remember the first crisis meeting, uh, which was organized late February 2020 and early March with our Asian members to learn from them and then to share this information. We published our first paper at the end of February about the, about the coronavirus, uh, how to manage coronavirus in public transport networks. And that paper was the starting, uh, uh, let's say, of, of, uh, of many actions, several actions and several uh, meetings with members to share knowledge and to, to make them feel belonging to a community that is having the same kind of, of problems, but that is also working together, collaborating together to find solutions. Also, one important role was to advocate for public transport, because unfortunately, there were a lot of misinformation, also a lot of uh, stigmatization of the public transport uh, uh, networks uh, that it is uh, 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 contaminating uh, and that that is carrying the virus, so that the people uh, will be will uh, catch the virus in, when traveling in public transport, etc. So we uh, organized our communication to speak to the policymakers, but also to speak to the media, to the press. We had a lot of interviews, a lot of uh, press releases and papers uh, disseminated to correct this. And you know, now after one year, it appeared that we were right. Uh, I mean, uh, now no one talks anymore about uh, the risk of uh, contamination in public transport. We, we talk about the risk of contamination in, in restaurants, in bars, in family gatherings, etc. But we don't talk uh, anymore about public transport. But at the same time, the public transport networks, they have uh, uh, introduced new disinfection and cleaning techniques. They, they, they had, there are new practices that makes people feel even uh, safer in, in public transport. So this advocacy, was, uh, was uh, very important uh, indeed. Thank you very much. I mean, yes, it turns out that one thing we always missed a bit in public transport that we don't socialize enough with people we don't know is going to, was going to be a big advantage in the end. Uh, silent in the crowd uh, was of course the big advantage which uh, public transport had had over other uh, large social space spaces. So let's now move to the future. And uh, you know, it's in, in some ways difficult because we actually don't know uh, when the pandemic is actually going to really end. Uh, but we also had already 12 months to not just rush uh, to sort out a crisis, but in parallel, and many of efforts have been launched, uh, whether it's the network of the networks of Mohammed or the networks itself, to think through what are the big pressure points we expect coming up in the next months and years, uh, how recovery could look like, uh, what kind of innovations can be carried forward and how maybe most importantly we can use a certain political momentum uh, to get back to some of the big issues which we always knew had to be dealt with in the urban transport sector. 
what are your strategies? What are sort of the ideas that are coming up? Um, and uh, Laura, let's start uh, with you, but we can then really make this very interactive and bounce back ideas here and there as well. Thank you. Um, uh, it's We're not out of the pandemic yet. We were having that conversation before we started where we feel some, uh, there's quite a lot of hope and optimism, uh, but, but we're not through it yet. Um, for, for us, some of the biggest pressures are the balance of while we still are maintaining social distancing, as we start to make changes to what's allowed, you obviously need to run more vehicles uh, more frequently to allow social distancing to take place. So how do we manage where we just may be starting to see more people returning to public transport, which is exactly what we want, but while we still have to maintain social distancing, so it puts pressure on capacity. And until we get to that spot where we are both allowing people to travel freely and there is no social distancing, it's about that, about that moment. And that feels like a really important thing for us because we want people to return and feel confident and safe. Um, and getting that right through that transition period is really important because what the last thing we want is people to make their first journey back and to think, that either it wasn't managed properly, it didn't feel safe, there were too many people on a vehicle and make them uncomfortable and retreat back off of public transport. So that's probably the, the pressure. Um, I'm happy to, to stop there or I can talk a little bit more about recovery, how, how, however you want. Why, why, why don't we pause here? Because it's such an important point you're raising. It's uh, to ensure once there is even a little increase, which may in some countries already happen now in ridership, that uh, those that return, some of them after indeed 12 months having not been on a train, a bus, uh, an underground, that they have an experience which is reassuring. The last thing uh, we want is people going back home and saying, never again, I really felt uncomfortable. Mohammed, how are you helping your partners uh, to make sure that this uh, moment of opening up will be a moment of uh, success and reassurance and confidence building? Yeah, so uh, that's an important uh, question indeed, uh, because we need to, uh, to uh, restore trust in public transport, that, that, that trust that we lost during this, uh, this, uh, this year. And uh, if we want to restore trust, we need to restore it at two levels. Of course, there are the, let's say, but by, by uh, uh, acting on rational uh, behaviors, I would say, by by uh, by disinfecting, by cleaning, uh, by calling people on how to use public transport, or by by educating people on how to use public transport, but avoid, by avoiding the crowd, uh, of course, and and then better managing the supply in a way that we flatten the peak uh, when we we operate public transport. Also by using tools which will uh, better manage the crowd. We see all these apps. Also, the way we operate, uh, the flexible operation of public transport will make it possible to, to manage crowd. So we have this, uh, this is the rational approach, but there is also the emotional approach, how we can make people uh, 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 have positive feelings about public transport, how we can also make people uh, be proud of using public transport because they know that if they use public transport, they will contribute to a better planet, to a cleaner environment, to more social inclusion, etc. So we need to act on the two, on the two levels, really, to, to, uh, to show that we, the public transport operators and organizations are doing their, their homework, 
to clean, disinfect, to better operate and provide a better service, but at the same time, edu uh, uh, inspire positive feelings and educate also the, the people to, to, to use it the right way, I would say. Uh, and, and also something important is that we have realized during this crisis that public transport is essential. We, we have seen during those lockdowns period, we see it again because there are unfortunately still some cities and, and counties where there is lockdown. And, and, and we have seen how essential it is because it carries the essential workers and those in the front, front line workers, et cetera. So this role of public trust, we need to build on that, to capitalize on that really, and to, 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 to use this to convey a positive image about public transport. And Mohammed, just to follow up on this, uh, has UITP de developed any form of recommendation about load factors, depending which stage of the pandemic you are in, where you would advise don't fill uh, your, your carriages beyond a certain density, or are, are there standards where you advise, or are you trying to actively not do that? Look, uh, uh, of course, we work on that uh, issue. When I mentioned earlier the flattening the peak, I mean, we have a whole the whole uh, work program on that and involving a lot of members on that. Uh, I don't, I don't think that we will go uh, so far in 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 recommending quantitative, uh, let's say, limits not to be not to be exceeded. Because uh, first, we consider that uh, when uh, the when people have the right behavior, when also the vehicles are clean, disinfected, etc. We don't need to have these limits, actually. We don't need to have these limits. So the limits are more needed, not from a sanitary uh, or from a health perspective. They are needed more for uh, uh, comfort. Uh, uh, if you want people to, 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 to travel in comfortable uh, uh, situation conditions, then yes, we need those limits. And that's why we want to, let's say, flatten the peak uh, and, and encourage people to, to travel outside of peak hours. There are some networks, for example, who, who are uh, uh, having uh, offering free access to their network before 7 a.m. to make to encourage people to travel earlier outside of the peak hour. So these kind of measures, we try to promote these kind of measures. Also, what I mentioned earlier, these uh, uh, apps which are tracking the, uh, the occupancy of vehicles and uh, trying also to encourage people to either to even their positioning on the platform, where they position themselves on the platform to avoid avoid the crowd. So this kind of uh, of application of projects, yes, it's our role to collect uh, the information to disseminate the, to our members. Thank you very much. Now you hinted at something which is going to be really important uh, for the future. That is about uh, the comfort of public transport, uh, and I want to come back to Laura and just ask her. Uh, if I were to uh, take uh, public transport in Birmingham at the moment, I'm assuming it's quite likely that I could find a seat uh, and uh, I will be able to enjoy my ride throughout uh, in a very comfortable position. Now, that's a quality which I wondered, uh, you are discussing internally is something you may want to push into the future. Uh, is this a conversation to, you know, uh, essentially provide uh, public transport users with the comfort other motorized transport users uh, would always assume they have the right to, which is the seat. Uh, well, absolutely. We, we, if you, if it's, uh, we can get you on an essential journey to Birmingham. I can guarantee you a seat at the moment. Uh, partially because we, we also are taking good care to monitor and not let people onto vehicles that are that are crowded. 
um, but, but I think there's a big piece of work to do here with business. So Mohammed made a really good point about flattening the peak. Um, and and it is, it's the same in most cities. There are points in any day when there are no seats available. And then there for the majority of the rest of the time, there's capacity. I think we've learned that many people, not all people, but many people can do elements or parts of their job successfully in a more flexible way. And there certainly seems to be um, quite a lot of discussion about how will people return to work in what way into office buildings and will it be a more flexible um, approach. This is where we need to be being really proactive with business because um, from a trans being parochial, from a very from a transport perspective, it is better for me and better for businesses to have people be able to travel in at 11 if that suits them and then leave at a different time or not have all that pressure on the network in those peaks. And I think I think we were moving towards a more flexible um, sort of commuting and live work balance before this. But it would, it's, it's been brought into sharp focus. So I think there's a big opportunity here. Um, one we have to do with partners in, in business, as I said, working in the, in the UK with the chambers to try to understand how they can give that message. And they're telling us that their members are really concerned about understanding how they're going to be able to use public transport to return. So it's important that we that we see that life come back into our urban areas, but we do that really thoughtfully with businesses in a way that means that that comfort can be given to all passengers. Nobody likes to stand for their entirety of their journey. It's that is not as pleasant as being able to, to sit down. There's no two ways about that. So I actually think it gives us an opportunity to accelerate a conversation that we've needed to have for quite some time. Thank if you. I, if, if I may. Absolutely, I, I, please. Yeah, I mean, no, because your question made me, made me think about the fact that I prefer to stand during 20 minutes in a in a crowded bus rather than sitting sitting one hour in my car in a traffic jam. Yes. So I, I think we need to really make people think about the, uh, yeah, not just about sitting or standing, but about, you know, the, 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 the service which, which is rendered by the uh, by public transport compared to the, uh, to the uh, impacts that the car traffic uh, and, and, and the nuisances that car traffic is, is generating. I think it's important that we don't, Consider public transport separately or, or from the rest of the of the of the traffic of the of, of the transport modes. Oh, you, you're absolutely right, and there is of course also a quality of being moved while standing. You know that uh, is in itself something which is actually can be quite desirable. Uh, Mohammed, you know my, myself as a student in transport, the 1990s, flattening the curve. You know this has been around for a long time. Uh, right. The inefficiencies of the peak, getting rid of it or moving it. A lot of um, research at the moment suggests we may be, uh, with knowledge workers, come from a five uh, day per week in the, in the office to maybe something like uh, two or three. What would actually help you and your partners much more is uh, if we have a temporal spreading, as Laura just suggested. Uh, some people may be coming much earlier, others maybe for, for lunchtime um, or, or in the later afternoon. Are these um, conversations where you are uh, helping your partners on the ground to uh, re-engage with businesses, many of them 
just like your own organization, are networked organizations, you know, global firms, uh, employees across the world. Um, is there something happening which is beyond just the individual city scale? Let's come together and think about our schedules, but maybe a more concerted push that we need a sustainable transport hour or uh, flexible work hours, uh, which goes beyond just uh, individual transport commuter sheds. No, certainly there are there are a lot of discussions between the transport uh, stakeholders and the uh, businesses and the cham chamber of commerce, universities, all all poles. I would say generating mobility. So there are a lot of discussions on that. The problem is that uh, you know when we define the supply in a public transport system, when we define the the infrastructure, we define it based on the peak hour. You know that's the problem we have in public transport. So the the, the cost we have we invest to uh, to, to satisfy the peak hour demand. And so uh, it means that once we have invested and what, once we have the vehicles, we have the infrastructure, etc., we need to make the, 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 the optimal use of, of, of it. So uh, the, what you are uh, uh, telling about uh, uh, working three, three days a week and, and, uh, and uh, having a different uh, mobility, mobility uh, uh, behavior, Certainly, this is something we have to take into consideration, but it's, it's, it will not have an impact on the short and medium term. It will have an impact on the longer term. So because we, the, the, the network have already invested, the, the, offer, the supply is there. The problem even is that it, will, it is now costing more than before, because in addition to, to the existing cost, we will have to disinfect and clean and, and try to limit the crowd, etc. We are introducing new tools, new technologies in public transport systems, uh, and this is coming with additional costs. So you see the challenge we have is that the cost is increasing, but the revenues will be lower because there are less people uh, using public transport currently. So this is the challenge we have in, in, in public transport. One Thank of the you. challenges, of course. Yes. Now, now let's let's move to uh, another area where actually quite a bit of innovation is happening, experimentation, testing in urban transport. And it's not public transport. It's much more about the use of streets and street space. Uh, and to what degree it's the place function versus the movement function. In the UK, we have these experiments about low traffic neighborhoods. Many cities have pop-up bike lanes and uh, uh, some sort of tactical urbanism with ideas of extending the bars and who knows what into the street. And I'm curious to understand, because this is, you know, a big thing for the public. That's what they see. That's how they, at the moment, experience also urban change. How much can public transport become a partner of essentially uh, a, a new proposition about public space, street space, uh, and where are you? Do you also see potential tensions with what is being experimented with? Uh, so curious to to understand uh, the attitude of uh, you know the backbone of urban transport, public transport, in relation to where the political heat is at the very moment. Laura, maybe you want to kick us off. I'm sure you have a few low traffic neighbourhoods in Birmingham. We do. Uh, we do, um, and lots of pop-up uh, cycle lanes and um, widening of pavement or taking parking bays out for extension of seats for outdoor seating and um, allowing more of that outdoor socialization to take place. Um, and it's not without debate. And I don't know that we've that we've got the answers uh, yet. Um, 
But what we did do in, in a number of sort of different moments through the pandemic is, is do quite a lot of online research as to how people were thinking and feeling about what was happening. And what was really interesting was even probably six months in, there we had an overwhelming response of people saying there were things that they were enjoying. And that was quieter streets, quieter skies, uh, physically themselves being able to do more walking, roads being a little more safe for cycling, more space to be out and speaking to each other. So I think I think we learned something in the pandemic, and I think that Mohammed made some really good points about connecting to the emotional side of, of everyone has a role to play in helping to uh, reduce our carbon footprint. Everyone has a role to play um, as a member of society, and I think um, you know, we've we've all had to look at the collective through this and understand how collectively we have impact. Um, but spaces clearly need to be for everyone, um, and that is for everyone. And designing those spaces, to me, is is hugely important. It brings that that urban planner out that I'm uh, of. I'm trying to focus just on transport. Um, but but if you think that tra that that transport is the backbone of how it works. We need to make sure that those places are accessible to everyone and public transport has a role to play in that. But they're also that, that we plan them in a way where the, the network doesn't segregate the space. And to me, the tension sits between whether, you know, how you both make those spaces accessible, bring people as close as you possibly can into them by public transport, but don't let the network itself sort of dissect the, the space. And I think that that is the challenge. Lots of people want those spaces to be without what they perceive to be noisy, smelly buses. But of course, those buses are, are the veins that bring the blood, you know, that those are the, that's how we bring people in and we make sure that those places are, are, are um, accessible to everybody and, and, and socially integrated. So I think, there, I think there is a challenge, but if people can't get to them to use them, they won't, they won't be good for everyone. So they have to be designed with accessibility in mind. Thank you. I, yeah, I, I think this, this space uh, uh, issue is, is a key one, is a key one, really. And uh, you, you, when you, you look to the, to the cities during lockdown period, and we discovered how much space is dedicated to cars. We discovered with all these empty roads you know, that, that, that the car is occupying a lot of space. And uh, I see that we, we focus a lot on uh, the environment, on uh, the climate change, on pollution. And, uh, and we don't talk enough about how best to use the space in the city. And uh, I, uh, what we risk now, if we focus much on, on pollution and not enough on space, is that we end with clean traffic jams. We end with uh, you know, zero emission cars, but, but, but occupying the road space. So, and the clean traffic jam is still traffic jam anyway. So it's important really that we tackle all these issues together, that we don't focus on environment, and then you know we then we will deal with safety, and then we will with road safety, and then we will deal with the with with the space, etc. So we have to 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 tackle or to address all these challenges together. And here it's about designing cities for people. Really, we 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 I mean during hundred years we had this interlude, I would say, 
where we have been designing cities for, for cars. Now we have to start designing cities for people. And then we come back to what you were talking about, Jonathan and, uh, sorry, uh, Philip and, uh, and uh, Laura, yeah, about, uh, about the, the road space shared for walking, for cycling, for dining, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, uh, that's how we, we want our cities to be. Yeah. Thank you very much. And yeah, uh, such an important uh, reminder that that's a progressive agenda which needs to stay with us uh, for the sake of the cities and its residents. Uh, now, I have to move us on uh, to really come to possibly the single most important issue at the present moment, and it's about finance. And I want to link that uh, to national governments as well. And in some ways, Laura earlier described what you could consider a scissoring effect whereby on the one hand, you need to actually provide even more costly services to you know, keep the, the rolling stock out there, have a lower number of riders and lower income. Therefore, your cost may actually be higher, but you have uh, less revenue through the fare box. Now, of course, many national governments and in some areas also state level governments have stepped in. They have been arguably uh, quite generous, rightly so. Uh, but there is a question of what is happening now uh, beyond these bailouts and these packages that were provided um, as a one-off. There's very optimistic uh, noise coming out of the United States where the new US uh, Secretary for Transport, Pete Buttigieg, suggested uh, he is working for a moonshot program for mobility, really uh, unusual commitment by the federal government in Washington to help public transport systems maybe because he was a mayor, that's more obvious to him. Uh, what uh, are our uh, agendas? How should we you know, ask for the right kind of uh, financial tools to be made available uh, for the right kind of support? Um, and uh, Mohammed, let's start with you. You have the global overview. This must be the number one question many of your partners uh, will want to hear from you. How can we negotiate with our national governments how can we make the case that we are important uh, and how can we get to finance models which are more sustainable? Yes, I think the, the I mean, this question related to national government is, is, is really a, a, a very important one. And I think the first, the first step is to make them recognize the benefits of public transport. This is the, the one important issue we have that, that public transport is seen as a cost. It is not, it's not seen as an investment for a better city, for, for, for healthier mobility. And so we need to convince them uh, that it is, uh, it is uh, public transport is not just a mode of, of, of transport. It's, it contributes to a city which is uh, more, more dynamic, uh, more prosperous, which uh, uh, it contributes to better road safety, et cetera, et cetera. So we all know the benefits of public transport. So we need to really make them accept this, to convince them that this is what public transport can bring to the city. And if, if they accept this, if they admit it, then it will be, I would say, easier uh, to, 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 to talk with them about the funding, about the, the how to support financially the sector, not just in time of crisis, but about a, a new funding, uh, funding scheme for, for public transport. And then maybe this is what is happening in the US. I mean, we are all surprised that these innovations or this commitment is coming from the US. We are not used to that. And maybe that's why, because maybe the, 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 the transport secretary is, is, is realizing all these uh, uh, benefits. So that's, that's what we, and, and also if we succeed to do that, we will uh, stop having this double uh, language 
of the governments or who on, on, on the one hand, you know, they will maybe talk positively of public, of public transport, but on the other hand, the first sector they will support is the car industry or, or, or the aviation industry and not the public transport sector. So it's, it's, we need to have this, uh, this discussion with them. What is good is that with this crisis, we have uh, much more interaction with the governments, much more interaction also with the, uh, with the, uh, 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 the supranational authorities like the European, uh, the European institutions, for example, which in, in the European Union uh, uh, regulate a lot of public aspects of public transport. So that's good. I mean, public transport is on the agenda or mobility, urban mobility is on the agenda. It's to us to use this opportunity to, to, to convince them and to bring also, uh, to bring them think about uh, solutions like uh, congestion charging, I mean, to, to encourage the, the, the government to define the right regulatory framework for congestion charging, for example, uh, for, for land value capture. So all these uh, tools that are uh, at our disposal, but they are not yet deployed, enough deployed in, in our cities. Thank you, Mohammed. And as you were speaking with also your references to uh, car industries and aviation, uh, it's actually, um, intriguing that we so rarely hear about uh, the number of jobs, uh, the contribution to the economy in aggregate terms of the public transport systems in a country. Uh, most people, you know, in many countries will be aware of uh, how many people will be employed uh, in key industries because it's constantly being used. That's why we need to do this and that. Um, and I hope we'll hear much more about uh, this contribution. I mean, translate the contribution of public transport providers into actual number of jobs, into actual number of GDP contribution, whatever it may be. Uh, I think at the moment, uh, there is a real opportunity still. Uh, Laura, what, what is it you would uh, want to add on that really important point, how we make the case? I, I, would, reiterate every, I would reiterate everything that Mohammed just said. I support, I support all of it. And, and you know, it it is it is part of the of the social network. It's part of the infrastructure. It's the beating heart of places. And I think it has been recognized more now through the past twelve months as to the fact that it is essential, not optional. Um, and it's proven itself to be. And 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 it's done what it's been asked to do in in countries all over the world, which is keep moving keep passengers safe and moving and and you know networks have done that i think i would just add from a probably a uk perspective um i hope that we take the opportunity to stop thinking about how we we compensate by mode and think about about how we fund a network so um you know we often talk about there's a package here for rail funding there's a package here for bus funding there's a package here for light rail and they're all very welcome um but but actually it's it's how do you bring that together how do you define the network that needs to to be there how can we bring those things into one package and then allow city regions to define them and compensate them appropriately so i also think there's an opportunity hopefully to make a bit more of, of, of a push for integration rather than potential competition uh, by mode in some of our in some of our cities. Thank you, Laura. Now, uh, some of the, the ways you can think about it in an integrated uh, approach is, is the pricing and to, to integrate the pricing and 
uh, have the same platform offer your tickets as well as maybe a congestion fee or a parking fee it, to have a sort of direct uh, question here for you in the Birmingham context uh, is the discussion about a potential congestion charge something that is increasingly on the table or is that less the case a, a, a different mechanism, but a clean air zone charge will be being brought in. Um, but um, it's it's not it's not the same as a congestion charge, but it has it has a lot of the same impacts. Um, but it's based more about um, where we are exceeding air quality in our region, which is obviously increasingly important. Um, but it is it, it's about it's about all the things that we know that make the the journey possible. Um, so, you know, all the end-to-end -end information, the ticketing, the seamless nature, the integration of that network alongside, um, if that's a carrot, then, then the stick of trying to restrict. So we need to think about things like parking, um, clean air zone charging, and those other mechanisms that dissuade people from driving where we don't want them to drive and where there's a really, especially where there's a really strong public transport alternative. So that's not appropriate everywhere. If you can't get someplace from, you know, it's, it, it, you need to have a good network, but where we do have those networks, we need to be looking at both ends of the spectrum on how we drive behavior change. Great. Thank you very much. At this point, I do want to come to some questions uh, which have slowly been building up. Um, and uh, the first one uh, is by Hugh Jenkins. Uh, and uh, Hugh was wondering whether there is a risk of a two-class or two-tier society where uh, the professional classes working in offices, having access to uh, essentially computer-based jobs will uh, sort of benefit from online uh, opportunity to access uh, their jobs. Uh, and then you'll have those that uh, are in other businesses relying on a less supported public transport system uh, with reduced frequency and service quality. Is there a risk that we see sort of the bifurcation of, of ridership, um, which would of course, I think, uh, undermine one of the most important uh, propositions of public transport where we all tended to come together, at least in, in many European contexts. Uh, Mohammed, what is your sense on that? Yeah, I mean, that's why it's, it's, it's important really to, uh, to, to, to diversify the offer in public transport also, to, to, uh, to consider public transport, uh, uh, to go beyond mass transit when we discuss about public transport, really to, to consider public transport as, as, a, as a combination of all on-demand and shared mobility solutions, to make sure that we, we, we have a diversity of, uh, of solutions that complement each other. So uh, that we have, of course, mass transit will remain the backbone but then we have also the other modes in a way that we can offer door-to-door -door solutions and not just station-to-station -station, uh, mobility solutions. And this will, will, will help people travel uh, easily, but also will make them think less about uh, owning a car or using a car. Or if, if they use a car, then it will be shared. So that's, that's the kind of, uh, of, of, of approach we should have about uh, diversifying the mobility options in a way that we each according to the time of the day, the purpose of the trip, et cetera, the profile of the users, they will use the right mode at the right, at the right moment. So that, uh, it's, it's yeah. important. It, it will take time maybe, but this is also uh, make the link with what uh, uh, Laura said about the, the, the importance of integration, really. It, we should not approach public transport mode by mode. It's, it's about 
offering comprehensive uh, a comprehensive mobility solution to, to, to people. Thank you. And that builds a really nice bridge to uh, another question by Rafael Cuesta, who uh, is curious. And, and Laura, maybe from a uh, experience out of uh, the Midlands, uh, why in the end, I mean, his assessment is we have been slow with uh, mobility on demand services, uh, helping to flatten the car curve and, you know, ultimately inviting uh, on demand services to be part of the public transport spectrum. Uh, why has this uh, been stuck or is this your assessment as well? Could it be faster? Uh, did we miss opportunities? Can we accelerate on this front? I think we have been slow. I mean, because you can see how you can see how on demand in a taxi sense uh, has been well ahead of what on demand in a public transport sense has been. Um, and I think I think that we need to be sort of more radical in how we think about it. So we've just done a couple of interesting uh, trials through one of through one of our funding programs. So one one where we are offering mobility credits if you agree to give up your car. So in exchange for a, a car that meets a certain standard of, of dirty diesel, three thousand pounds worth of mobility credits, which you can use across anything from car club that whole range that Mohammed just set out of of, of end to end. But I think it's about it's about being willing to innovate in that space. But also, I come back to the sort of comment I made about mode. As long as we have modes in competition with each other, then adding in something new, like demand responsive, can be perceived to be a threat, a patronage threat, as opposed to building part of an integrated end-to-end -end network. So I think it, it, part of it is that it is that nature that we've had to, to see modes as in competition with each other for the passenger, as opposed to thinking about how that fills in the gaps in our network and in fact you know could be bringing people in that first end or last end of their journey um onto the network you know as as complementary not um not threatening maybe, maybe one uh, I, I think one important issue i'm not talking about birmingham of course but generally speaking one important issue is that uh, the governance systems we have they they are not defined necessarily from the user perspective Mm -hmm. So we define governance system, system which are based on modes or based on other considerations, but not taking into consideration the user perspective. And that's why we progress slowly. It's, it's not just in Birmingham. It's, 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 it's all over the world, actually. I mean, this, this kind of combination between new mobility services and, uh, and, and, and conventional public transport actually, is something we all want, but we don't still succeed to, to find the right governance scheme to, to make this... Uh, actors which are from the private and the public uh, sector but from uh, startups and 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 uh, and, uh, and public monopolies i would say uh, work together I, I think this is one this is very important challenge we have to, to address we have to find a solution to, to that and if we want to find a solution we have to put ourselves from the uh, look to transport from the user perspective and and define the the solution that will make the the, the travel of that of that user uh, easier and and, and convenient Thank you, Mohammed. And I want to stay with you uh, also for the next question by John Carr, who wants to go back to, and you mentioned this earlier, the really important experience by public transport providers in the Far East, uh, who had, of course, experienced uh, SARS and MERS, uh, and actually never went down this route of social distancing in public transport. Um, do you remember, do you recall a moment where actually you were trying to uh, connect, you know, let's say European, maybe North American 
public transport providers with those uh, in Asia to, to remind them uh, about the relatively low risks? What, what happened there? Why didn't we learn enough from that experience and moving forward? Do we need just much better modelers working directly for us transport people? You know, uh, what's interesting is that when uh, we started here in Europe uh, imposing face masks, for example, in public transport, those face masks were not imposed at that time in Hong Kong or in Singapore, because, you know, though they used to, to have face masks, I mean, some, some passengers, so, so because they don't, they, they, they have a different experience with the, with the uh, because of the, also the, the previous experience they had with SARS and, and MERS, etc. So, uh, of course, we, we I, I, I think it's maybe because they are more experienced in managing crowds there in, in, in the Far East, maybe because they had this first experience in, in 20 years ago. So they have a different approach to this, uh, to this crisis. They had a different approach to the crisis compared to the Europeans that are yeah, uh, learning. So in, in, in UITP, of course, it's our role to, to, uh, to, to try to, uh, to uh, share this experience, but then, you know, it's to those who will be implementing it to, to, to decide how to implement it. And, uh, and sometimes there are psychological uh, barriers that uh, make uh, the, 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 this organization implement the, the, their, their, their uh, actions differently from, from others. So, uh, yeah, I think it's more psychological. It's more about the acceptability also of the population. Uh, if the population will accept it, you know, we, we, we see it now with this uh, sanitary crisis about, uh, about the, uh, this lockdowns that countries, people are behaving differently from county to county. There are counties where people accept it easily and respect it and other counties where people, they don't accept it. And anyway, they will not respect it. They, will, they are ready to pay fines, for, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think the psychological element is very important. Here. Thank you. Now, unfortunately, we need to bring this slowly to a close. There are many really interesting questions I would have loved to go through, uh, but I now want to have a just a final uh, round and first ask Laura and then Mohammed. If you think of the next uh, three, four months up to the summer, what are going to be really important moments, uh, issues, decisions, uh, which may be indicative uh, how we're getting it right or wrong in our cities and in relation to transport systems? Are there certain indicators, things you, you are very closely watching, uh, wondering whether that's an indication of our future with collective transport? Laura. Uh, definitely patronage numbers. We watch every single day on, uh, you know, whether, and that includes the roads to understand where we are seeing um, patronage return. Um, where, I'll just give an example on our light rail system where we know we now have a, a sort of a new afternoon peak, which is sort of a new time that we didn't really have before. And we're putting out extra vehicles at that time to try to make sure um, that there's enough capacity. Um, between, now, between now and summer, we, have, we do have um, a lot to do. And I've commented before on um, cleanliness and, and trust, but I also think we need um, a very clear campaign. Um, unfortunately, especially in this country, we sent out a lot of messages early on that gave people reason to think that public transport wasn't safe uh, as far as um, as far as marketing and advertising. And we we now need to really focus on being able to communicate with passengers that when the time comes and they are ready to come back, 
we will be here safe, reliable, clean, and ready to take them where they need to be. I think it comes back to how we're gonna be able to build back that trust. And as you know, trust takes a very long time to build and a very short time to lose. So making sure that we understand our pinch points, understanding, for example, when the kids go back to, when the kids went back to school, we've got certain areas of, of bus stations that get really quite busy with kids at certain times. Are we making sure that we've got safer travel police out at that location at the right time? So be driven by the data and what it tells us about where the pressures are, and then be incredibly thoughtful and careful about responding to those pressures in a way that in, at every opportunity is building people's confidence back in our network. Thank you, uh, Laura. And Mohammed, what are the decisions and numbers you will be watching over the coming yeah. months? Uh, actually, uh, you know, since the start of this pandemic uh, a year ago, we started the uh, monitoring ridership in about 50 cities in the world on all continents. And, and uh, now we can even compare the ridership now compared to 2019, et cetera, and, uh, and seeing the different uh, evolutions and seeing how some cities are already at 80 or 85 percent of, of the, the ridership uh, uh, of pre-COVID pre, uh, pre and although they are still at 40, 50 percent. So this watching, I mean, the, 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 the evolution of the ridership is for us a, a very, very good uh, indicator of the uh, resumption of the norm, I would say the new, the new normal, uh, not the normal. Uh, and, uh, but uh, what we will be watching, of course, is the uh, evolution of the, uh, of the uh, sanitary situation, uh, because this will have an impact on, on, on ridership, on, the, on, on how public transport will, or, and when will public transport will go back to, uh, people will go back to public transport, sorry. So that's important. So uh, yeah, and we are following this uh, closely. And, uh, and uh, what I would like to say is really, uh, whatever is the, uh, the level of ridership in the coming month or even the coming years, uh, what we see is, uh, is the strong commitment and the sense of responsibility of public transport stakeholders, of public transport operators, uh, the authority, the supplying industry in innovating, in developing solutions, in, uh, in providing a service which will be uh, uh, more comfortable, more healthy, uh, a service that is really answering the expectations of the, of the, of the travelers. So, and this will continue whatever is the ridership. Uh, and so the service, the improvement of the service, this is an obsession for public transport stakeholders. And, and this, of course, we will be following this closely and, uh, and uh, communicating about that. Thank you very much, Mohammed. I'll hand over to Jonathan in a second, maybe just for me, this really important takeaway about uh, the trust, uh, the next few months of really showcasing uh, that it can be done, good quality public transport, uh, that is also affordable and that's where we need national government uh, and uh, that will people uh, make uh, happy to, to return. Uh, exploring the new experiments and making partnerships, uh, ensuring also that we are moving fast beyond the thinking about individual transport modes uh, and really uh, treating the, the system, the transport system as a collective that needs to be managed in an integrated way. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the point about uh, ultimately having new tools of communicating the value of uh, public transport, of urban transport more generally uh, to policymakers, but also to the general public, which will lay the foundation for hopefully a new acceptance that this is indeed a public good. 
Jonathan, over to you. I also want to thank Laura and Mohammed. Uh, really nice having talked to you uh, today, but now over uh, to Jonathan. Thanks very much, Philip. And uh, yeah, thanks to Laura, Mohammed, and Philip for what was a fascinating discussion and conversation. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us on the 29th of April for Urban Transport Next 05 on Sharing is Caring, about how shared mobility could play a bigger role in UK transport policy, how the UK could become a little less top gear and a bit more car share. So I hope you can join us for that. And in the meantime, thanks again to our panel, to everyone who took part live, for those who are listening to the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>